Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would come now by your Holy Spirit and through your word, awaken that kind of love for you with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength and all our mind. Show us what that love is. But even if we can't fully comprehend and grasp what it is to love you, make it happen. Grant that we would do it. And then through us, I pray that a love for you with all the heart, all the soul, all the strength, and all the mind would spread to our churches and to our nations. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's do just a little review so that you can see, keep in mind how things fit together. God does everything he does from eternity to eternity to uphold and display and vindicate the worth of his glory. That's good news, not egomania, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him so that our pursuit of his glory and our pursuit of our joy are not alternative pursuits. They never should compete with each other, but rather our pursuit of our fullest and longest joy is in him and therefore reflects his worth. And so our happiness in him and his glory in us happen together. Therefore, you can't say, shouldn't say, that feelings, spiritual affections, or emotions are marginal, or icing on the cake, or cabooses on the train, or anything like that. They are essential to glorifying God. I had a woman ask me one time, I love this woman, she, if I named her name, you'd all know who she was, in fact, and I admire her greatly. We were in a seminar together in England, and we were doing a a seminar on missions, and uh, I was hammering away at the pursuit of joy being the strength and the motive by which you would be taken to the mission field and sustained there through thick and thin, even if it cost you your life, and, and she's very uncomfortable with that, and she, she said, John, don't you think we should call people to pursue obedience and not to pursue joy? And I said, well, that that's like saying you should pursue fruit, not apples. Because obedience means doing what God says, and what he says is rejoice in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And so, yeah, of course, we, we should tell people to pursue obedience, and I'm picking out a part of it that I think a lot of people don't think is obedience, and just hammering on it with all my life because I think the, the neglect of it kills people and hurts churches and wounds the mission and dishonors God. Give another little clarification. One of the reasons I, I suggested that text be read was up in Katoomba, last weekend, and, and uh, we had this Q&A after, over, over lunch, and one woman asked a, a question, and I'm, I'll just repeat it, because the answering of it, I think, brought a lot of clarity 
at least helped my brain get clear on some things. She said, don't you think it would be good, or what would you say if I said we should devote ourselves to loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and then joy would follow? What would you say to that? And I said, well, it's a, it's a category confusion. The, the question involves a, a, a category confusion. What is loving God with all your heart? And I argue that an essential element of loving God with all your heart is delighting in God, treasuring God, being satisfied in God. That's what it means to love God. So no, joy doesn't follow it. It is it. And a text that points in that direction is in John 14, 15, where people have often quoted this to me to say that love, loving God is obeying God because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there, loving God is obedience and then joy comes if you do that. I say, That's not what the text says. <laughs> it says... If you love me, that's one thing, there will be a result. You'll do what I say. They're not the same. You can't use that text to say they're the same. That text says they're not the same. And they're not. Loving God is something you do that yields obedience to lots of other things. Like laying down your life for people. It's being satisfied in God, delighting in God, enjoying God, treasuring God. That's love. And if you do that, you obey. Because all his commands are good news. And they tell you how to maximize that, how to extend it to other people, even if it costs you your life. So just clarifying there how important up till this point in these messages, affections for God are. They're not marginal. And then we argued last night that a pastor who loves his people will pursue his own joy because he can be of no advantage to them if he does his ministry with groaning and not with joy. And you want to be advantage of advantage to your people because that's what love does. And so in order to be loving to them, you must seek your own joy in the, in the ministry. And then we argued that in 2 Corinthians one twenty four. We are workers with them for, your, for their joy, and so every sermon should have over it that banner. Uh, even if I have to preach a very hard sermon here about repentance or about self-denial or about sacrifice or whatever, this is aiming at their deepest, longest joy. People should feel that. Our pastor is after our fullest and eternal Joy, And then we finished last night by pointing out that if this notion, this profound, I think, reality of the centrality of the affections in glorifying God is held on to, then the evangelical church might be spared some of its pendulum-swinging errors into intellectualism and then anti intellectualism and legalism and antinomianism, and I tried to show how that might work. That's where we've come so far. 
Now my main point is right thinking about God exists for the sake of right feelings for God. That's the thesis of this message. Right thinking about God and all his works and ways and person happens, should happen, for the sake of right affections for God. I'll say it four or five other ways. Logic exists for the sake of love. Reasoning exists for the sake of rejoicing. Doctrine exists for the sake of delight. Reflection about God exists for the sake of affection for God. Heads exists for hearts. Knowing the truth is the basis for admiring the truth. Therefore, both thinking and feeling are essential to glorifying God, but they are not equally ultimate. Thinking exists for the sake of affection. The devil gets many things intellectually right and affectionately he gets none of them right he thinks many true thoughts and he feels no right affections about them so I'm not going to make what the devil can do ultimate making ultimate what the devil can't do he hates the truth that he knows So knowing is not ultimate. It's affections for God, love for God, treasuring God, being satisfied in God, adoring God, praising God, admiring God, being thankful to God, trusting God. These these heart affections are the goal of thinking. And the point today is thinking is essential and really, really important for the kinds of affections that honor God. So let me illustrate with a little little made-up story here why affections for God that are not based on right thinking about God won't honor God. So I hope this is a big clarification that up till now, when I say God is most glorified in you, when you are most satisfied in him, I mean a satisfaction based on and rooted in right views of God. So a man walks up to you on the street with a, with a sack of $10,000 in cash. You don't know him. You've never seen him. He hands you the sack And he says, hi, would you take this down to the bank and deposit it for me? Here's my account number. Here's my PIN number. Here's my name. Here's my address. Here's all my identification. Thank you. And you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I don't even know you. Why are you trusting me with this money? I could just walk away. And he says, no reason. I just feel like trusting you. I just have this strong sense that you are trustworthy. 
I have this deep desire in my heart to give this to you and trust you. Now, my question is, at that moment in this little story, how do you feel? Do you feel honored? No, you don't. He's crazy. (laughs) Meaning, his affections are groundless. They're not based on any knowledge. You should not feel honored. He's stupid. Now, here's here's the next scene. You're walking down, another man walks up to you, and he gives you a bag of $10,000, and he gives you his account number and his name and his pen. Would you please deposit this for me? I need to be somewhere. And you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I don't even know you. Why are you trusting me? He says, no, you don't know me. But we do work in the same place, and I've been watching you for a year, studying every move you make listening to you talk, I know you. I know you. You're a reliable person. That's why I'm giving it to you. And then he walks away. Now, how do you feel? You feel honored, big time. Why? Knowledge, truth. He based his decision on truth. He based his decision on thinking about you. He studied you well. That's the way it is with God. I am into thinking, big time. For God is not honored by emotions that aren't rooted in right thinking and right doctrine. About the studying of his character and his ways. So that when you give your life over to him and say, you are my treasure, you are my all. And he says, why do you say that? And you say, I know you. I've watched you. I've studied you. You are reliable. You are beautiful. You are glorious. You are all satisfying. God feels really happy about that. He's very honored by satisfaction that's rooted in knowledge. So that's my thesis. That right thinking about God is essential to right affections for God, and God is not honored by any other affections. This is really important. This is lifting thinking and lifting the life of the mind very high. Not higher than worship and affections, but really high. Really high. So what I want to do in the time we have is give you ten biblical evidences that point in this direction. My guess is that most of you in this room already agree, and I could just quit. Um, and, and you would all say, well, yeah, I, I, yeah we, we believe that. We believe that thinking. But you know what happens? Not all of you are wired to be thinkers. Some of you would just love to be with people all the time, and you don't want to study, and you don't want to think, and you don't want to try to figure things out. You're just not wired that way, and you need help. That is encouragement and incentives, and the Bible does that. If you saw what I just said in the Bible, it might have a lot more help and power than if I just say it. So that's what we're going to do. Number one, and we'll be looking at texts. Um, and let's go to Romans 10. 1 and 2. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his Jewish kinsmen, is that they might be saved. So they're not saved. And then he says, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, this is appalling. They have a zeal for God. (laughs) They're John Piper types, right? (laughs) And they're lost. This is sobering. Really sobering. They have a zeal for God and they're going to hell. That's why he's praying for their salvation. What's wrong with their zeal? It doesn't accord with knowledge. In this case, it's all about justification. We'll save that for another time. That's important. So my my first pointer is... You can have a zeal for God, or to use John Piper's word, passion for God's supremacy. You can have that and be lost if it's not rooted in right thinking about God. It's not according to knowledge. Number two, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This this text has been very um, significant in my pilgrimage. Second, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. He's just finished giving these analogies of the soldier and the athlete and the farmer. And he says in verse 7, Timothy, think over. Think. So there's the, the thinking thing that I'm after. Think over What I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The two errors that this verse prevents us from making are saying this. You got to think. Because God doesn't just give you understanding. You got to think your way to understanding. That won't work. Because the text says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. You can't make thinking replace the illuminating work of God in giving understanding. You you can't do that. This verse won't let you. Here's the other mistake. Since God is the one who gives understanding, I don't need to think. So you can see you can see the two. These are these intellectual and non-intellectual types, right? One saying, "Hey, think, think, think," because that's the way you get it, and God doesn't give it. And the other say, "I don't need to think because God gives it." And this verse will not let either of those mistakes stand. This verse says the amazing thing: think over the apost- the apostolic teaching. Think over this paragraph that I just said, Timothy. Because, now, I I add, in and through your thinking, God's illumining work gives you understanding. He doesn't circumvent your brain and just plant ideas in your brain without thinking. It's not the way it works. 
think over what I say. That's what I, in my pastoral life of preaching, that whole dimension, that's mainly what I do. They ask me, how long does it take to prepare a sermon? All I do is think and pray, think and pray, think and pray, think and pray. With a piece of paper, doodling, 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 drawing, help me figure this out. So I'm praying every like two minutes and I'm thinking all the time. That's my life. And this verse has, has just, I felt God's favor. He just said, yes, that's the way I want your Fridays to look. Eight hours, 12 hours, 15 hours, just whatever it takes, I'm with you. I'm right there. I'm blessing that thinking work. I like that. Do that because I told you to. So that's number two. Number three, let's go to Acts 17. Here's Paul in the synagogue as he did customarily in verses 2 and 3 of Acts 17. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So those three words, reasoned with them, explained things to them, and demonstrated or proved things to them about the Christ from the Old Testament. Now, here, here's what drives this home to me. Paul, of all writers in the Bible knows that these folks are spiritually dead. They have no spiritual life. And he's reasoning with them. Isn't that hopeless? Isn't that pointless? Get reason with a dead man. He knows that the mind of the flesh does not receive the things of the spirit. And that's what they have, is the mind of the flesh. They're lost. They're in the synagogue. They don't know the Messiah. He wants them to get saved. They're dead, and they have the mind of the flesh, and he's reasoning with this mind. Huh. Why, won't, why would you do that? He knows that the God of this age is blinding the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4. So they're blind, and the devil is in this synagogue blinding them. And he's reasoning with them and arguing with them and trying to persuade them. And he knows from First Peter, Paul would agree with this, we are born again through the Spirit, through the living and abiding Word of God, the Gospel. So, the paradox is that we, we know people in... Australia, New Zealand, and all the places where you come from who, who are without Christ are dead. They have the mind of the flesh. They don't receive the things of the Spirit. And human logic would say, no point in talking to them. Just pray. Just pray. Pray for illumination or something to happen. That's not the way God does it. 
God does it through preaching, preaching that is full of reasoning and full of explaining and full of proving. Of course, Paul doesn't raise anybody from the dead. God does. But God uses intellectual means. And if we try to short circuit and say, what we need is some signs and wonders or what we need is some really enthusiastic worship or what we need is not reasoning, not explaining, not proving, not proclamation. We're just abandoning what God says. So it's so crucial that we get the spirit and the mind right here. Spirit and truth, spirit and word. The the mind is, is understanding the word and explaining the word and reasoning over the word. And God the Holy Spirit is coming in there with great power to awaken them like Lydia. He opened her heart to give heed to the word. You never know when that might happen, on a train or in a church. You never know when your simple, verbal, mentally thought through, articulated little statement or argument, God may bless and open the eyes of the blind. Number four. Let's go to Luke 12. Luke chapter 12. Verses 54 to 57. Jesus assumes that we will use logic, Aristotelian logic, in nature and in spiritual matters. This is kind of a risky thing to say. I I remember when I was in seminary, it was real prevalent in those days to distinguish Greek thinking and Hebraic thinking. And anybody that referred to linear logic was accused of being Greek, not Hebraic or biblical. And I, I was listening to that. I was like, that doesn't sound right to me. And, and it took me a while to realize why, and, and this text illustrates why. So here we are at Luke 12, 54 to maybe 57. He said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, Shower's coming. So it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, it will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. Why don't you know how to interpret the present time? Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? So what's going on here? When I said Aristotelian logic, all I mean is is, uh, syllogism. You know what a syllogism is? Uh, All men are mortal. Plato is a man. Therefore, Plato's mortal. In my seminary days, that was called Greek, Greek. I said, Greek? That's God. That's human. That's the way the brain works. And of course, what, how, how can I say that? I, I I'm not in the head of God. Well, I've got his word. It says 
Jesus expects them to use this, okay? So premise number one, uh, when, a th- when a south wind blows, it will be hot. Premise number two, a south wind is blowing. Conclusion, it's going to be hot. That's logic. They're using it. Jesus expects them to use it. And he says, now why don't you use that to recognize me? That's what he says. He he admired the use of their mind to figure out by logic, every day when a wind blows this way, heat comes. Today, wind is blowing this way. Must be that heat will come. That's logic. It's Aristotelian. It's divine. It's the way God is and the way our brains are. God was very upset with them. He called them hypocrites. Isn't that amazing? So these brilliant scholars who use their minds to figure out amazing things, get us on the moon or put the Hubble telescope out there, who knows how far, and discover Pluto's not a planet, it's got an extra moon, and, and, and they don't know anything. They're like blind, leading the blind, because they won't use that massive God-given intellect to draw out the inferences from Revelation natural. The heavens are telling the glory of God. I mean, when I picture myself at the last judgment. And I don't know if God will allow us to watch the judgment of the world, you know, after we have been ushered in. But it's going to be really sad when brilliant scholars face God and God just says, what? All those pictures from the Hubble telescope and you saw nothing? What? I just think that'll be the end of the conversation. I think shame will just cover their faces. It will just cover their faces. And and they'll be gone. It really is obvious that he's God. I I hope you see the glory. The heavens are telling the glory of God. So are the cliffs up there in Katoomba. So I, that's the prettiest part of your land I've seen so far. I haven't been many places. <laughs> but it's really pretty. Really impressive. I would be happy to just sit there a long time and, and think God. That's number four. God expects us to use syllogistic reasoning of the ordinary kind that we use every day when we drive through traffic and conclude that people stop at red lights in order to know him. Number five, Matthew 21. Jesus refuses to deal with people who use their reason to conceal truth. This is one of my favorite texts about how I don't want to be and and how much I see in politics, church politics, national politics, this kind of use of the mind. Jesus won't talk to these people. 
So, let's start at verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus, now, if you ask why he responds this way, it's a test to see if they're intellectually honest. Jesus answered them, I'll ask you a question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Now watch their brains. They're very adept here. They're very intellectually adept. But what do they do with those brains? Here's what they do. They discussed it among themselves, saying, they're reasoning now, if we say from heaven, he will say, and they draw the inference, they're thinking, they're thinking, he will say to us, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, then we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John is a prophet. So, they answered Jesus, we don't know. I wish I could have watched Jesus' face. He said to them, neither would I tell you by what authority I do these things. I'm finished talking to you. That's what I feel like when political people are asked, what do you think about so-and-so? And they start talking. <laughs> Did you hear the question? Just spin and ramble and evasion and all over the place, and they get elected. <laughs> I mean, do Americans have brains when they elect people? I mean, good night. There was no connection between what they said and what was asked. This is evasion. Jesus hates that. And so do I. So should you. In other words, here's the point. When it comes to thinking and talking, Jesus admires clarity and forthrightness, not coy, maneuvering, spinning, evading using your brilliance to not tell the truth. The truth was, we know what we think. It was from man. John the Baptist, baloney, we don't know. That's pure baloney. It's not true. So don't be like that. Let me read you from Paul the opposite. This is what pastors want, right? This, this is... Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's just a beautiful breeze of clear air blowing through that. 
What you see is what you get. I have no hidden agenda. I'm not trying to conceal anything from anybody. I tell you what I think. You know me when I open my mouth. That's, that's what Paul was saying Christians should be like. I listen to pastors. I, this just came to my mind. I think the Lord wants me to say this. Um, I know that it's hard to preach Romans 9. I wrote a whole book on Romans 9. It troubled me so bad. Called The Justification of God. Long time ago. Foundational to almost everything I think. And I, I was talking to a preacher one time. He said, how do, you, how do you preach it without driving everybody away? And I started talking. He said, I was talking, and he named the person, a denominational official. Okay, up, upper rank, who he had asked that question. How do you preach Romans 9? And he said, he said, a denominational official said, I think it's possible to preach Romans 9 without letting the people know what you think. <laughs> he said that. May lightning strike him. That is so wicked, so undermining to our credibility. And then I watch, and this, and these things keep coming to my mind. I'm, I, I really am upset about this. Can you tell? I, I, I watch prominent Christian figures get interviewed after hurricanes or after riots in London or whatever. And I say, come on, come on, come on, say it. God reigns. God's wise. God is good. God's in control. Say it. And they don't say it. Just dance all around. You can hardly tell they're Christians. You can hardly tell they're theists. Oh, we just have compassion. And they're so scared. They're so scared of telling the truth. Okay. That's not in the manuscript. <laughs> Number six. Thirteen times, Paul asked... You don't have to look up anything here. I'm just going to read a bunch to you. Thirteen times, Paul asked the question, Do you not know? Remember those? Especially in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know? Do you not know? What's that? What's going on when he says, Do you not know? That rhetorical question is, If you knew, things would be different. So I'll give you a few examples. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know that we will judge angels? <laughs> Stop there. If you knew, Christian, he's saying to Corinth, if you knew that you would judge angels, if you knew that, if your mind had heard that message and embraced that truth, you probably wouldn't be going to secular judges to settle this dispute. That, that's how practical this is. If you knew, if you knew, you will judge angels. Do you not know that to lie with a prostitute is to be one body with her? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And on and on. He does that 13 times. What, why? Because knowing things changes. 
affections and affections change life. Our people need to know things. Lots of glorious things. This is a very thick book. Filled with glorious truth. How can one ever be bored by this book or think he has exhausted it? Frankly, I have no understanding of, no comprehension of, and no patience with pastors who get sermons anywhere but in this book. Like they read a story or and then they spend their whole time talking about this event in, in society. I think, this is God's word. This is full, chock full of mind-blowing, church-transforming, world-changing truth. And you can read the newspaper to get some idea what to preach. May God open our eyes. Our people need to know things because knowing, knowing in our heads, right thinking alters the way they view and act and feel. Number seven, the Bible tells us that Christ has given pastors and teachers to the church. You know, for Ephesians 4.11, he has given some pastors, evangelists, well, given right here, prophets, um, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Pastors and teachers, probably the same as you know. So he's given pastors and teachers to the church. Secondly, we also know that when the qualifications are listed for elder, in 1 Timothy 3, 2, one of them is didactos, competent to teach, adept at teaching. So he's given teachers to the church, which means not everybody is one. And he says they must be gifted in explaining things. I just think that's amazing. That's amazing. God has set up the church where everybody's not a teacher. I believe in the priesthood of the believer, right? And I think, call no man father and teacher and all that. I understand that. There's a a marvelous camaraderie and brotherhood. But there are elders who govern, and there are teachers who are the elders who who explain things to the people. God has, God's not into total egalitarianism. Not in church structures, not in marriage structures, not in social structures. Just as God is not into that. He's into hierarchy. And teachers are responsible to take the Bible for the vast number of ordinary people who are, by the way, really happy when they do it and explain it to them. And so, since he set it up that way, that there are teachers and that there is a gift to teaching, I'm concluding from that that teachers should think about the Bible and explain it to the people. It's an intellectual process. They can't just do touchy-feely things and have a church that's got any substance or depth or staying power. So, the existence of the gift of teaching and the office of elder is an evidence pointing towards the importance of the life of the mind. Number eight, the Bible tells us to declare the whole counsel of God. Acts twenty twenty seven. Paul says, I'm, I'm leaving you. 
Your blood is not on my hands because I have not shrunk back from telling you the whole counsel of God. I hope if you've been at your church 10 years or more or so, you, you could say that. Now, what is the whole counsel of God? I don't, I don't think I could put real clear boundaries around it. I think it's the gospel at the center. And then it's the whole cluster of redemptive historical activity of God from beginning to end that explains that gospel. It shows the implications of that gospel, protects that gospel, unfolds that gospel. That would be the, the whole counsel of God, and it would include, include a lot more than, than just the core gospel statements. So, but when you say whole counsel, it implies there's some coherence to it. it, it, it it's not just a little... You just, Sunday after Sunday, you're just kind of throwing out diamonds, and there's nothing, nothing whole about it. If that's true, if whole counsel of God implies some measure of unity or coherence, then we got work to do. And it's our job. It's not, it's not mainly their job. It's our job to find and discern and uh, explain over time the whole counsel is beyond most lay people, mainly for time partly for gifts, reason, inclinations, but it's our job. And it's hard work. It's thinking work. So that's argument number number eight. I, I jotted down another text here in, in, on that point. Is that why Paul calls the expositor a workman? 2 Timothy 2.15, the workman who does not need to be ashamed. <laughs> workman, it is. To, be, to handle the word of God, as that text says, is to be a workman. So some men take a shovel and they work all day. <laughs> and that's our job. It's just as hard. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people who give their lives to manual labor think pastors don't do anything. They have never sat over um, a paragraph for 12 hours and like Luther said, I beat upon the Apostle Paul. I beat upon him until he yielded the word righteousness to me. I didn't get it and I just beat on him. Well, that's the way I feel. My, my, I think the brain is like a muscle. I'm, I'm not a doctor or a physiologist. I don't really know how this works. I just know that at the end of the day, sitting at my desk doing nothing, I'm exhausted. <laughs> my head won't do anything. It just, it just won't do anything. And I, I'm so thankful that God ordained sleep between Friday and Saturday. Because I had to preach Saturday night, and I have to get this sermon into my heart Saturday afternoon. So a workman implies, I think, mental labor. Number nine, almost done. The Bible is a book. That's my ninth argument. <laughs> the Bible is a book. God came in the flesh. Jesus was not a book. But when he had done his work that had to be done in the flesh, in the God incarnate God-man, he left. And he left behind apostles and prophets who are the 
foundation of the church, and they are still the foundation of the church because of this. And it's a book. Just think how many other ways he could have done it. He could have ordained that way back then there was video or audio. He could have ordained that we all get special revelation, just bat the dream comes to every pastor, and he's told by the Holy Spirit what to say every week. He could have done all those ways, and he chose to do it with a book, which means you don't have any access to it until you learn how to read. Or somebody learns how to read so they can read to you if you're preliterate. Learning how to read is an intellectual exercise. Learning how to read well is a real intellectual exercise. I don't think I learned how to read until I was 23 years old. You know, I, I, I could read, but I couldn't construe. I read the Bible as though it were a string of pearls until I was 22 years old. I would read it, and the verse here, hmm, you know, like a lozenge. Ah, oh, suck on it all day long. That's great. Night, get another lozenge, pop it in. And I, I, it was wonderful. I, I think you can still do that. That's okay. But it's a chain. It's not a string of pearls. It's a chain. I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For in it the gospel, it is the power of God and the salvation. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The faith of hate that is written. The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God has been... That's not pearls on a string. That's links in a chain. And I better get what each one of those fours is for. And I wasn't doing that for 22 years. Somebody showed me that. And suddenly I became a workman. Not just a reveler, you know. Oh, pearls, pearls, pearls. Everywhere. Wonderful. And that, I, I really don't want to minimize that. I still do that. I go for a pearl every morning. But now I... <laughs> The chain is glorious. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What will we say to that chain, that unbreakable chain? I love that text. I'm home, glorified, because I'm justified. But I didn't, I didn't think that way for years. That's a thinking. And so it's a book. It's a book. And isn't it interesting that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, when you read this, you are able to perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. I mean, has reading ever been elevated to such a height? Let me read that again. When you read this, this book, Ephesians, you are able to perceive my divinely inspired insight into the mystery of Christ. You can't do an end run around reading. That's the way into the mystery. So it's a book. That's why, isn't it, everywhere the church has gone, the first two institutions, three institutions that rise are churches, schools, and hospitals, you know. It's it's just the full orb. We worship, we think, we care for the body. That's what happens. That's who Christians are. Schools are woven into the fabric of how God reveals himself. And finally, number 10. 
maybe an, close with an example of how thinking in a text ministers um, affections which change visible behavior for the glory of God. So try to put it all together. This, and I, I'll just close with one, one example. I've got two or three written down here, but let's do this one. This is uh, Matthew 7, and it goes like this. You all know this text. You know it by heart. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. So an invitation to pray. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks. Everyone who knocks. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door is open. Or which of you... Now, what, what's going on here? This is, this is an argument for the probability that God's going to answer your prayer. Or which of you who has a son who asked him for a loaf of bread would give him a stone? And the answer to that is obviously, no, I wouldn't. So the argument is, is a fortiori. You don't need to know that Latin phrase. It's from the lesser to the greater. If you would do that, how much more would God? So there's reasoning going on. Jesus is reasoning with us. Which of you who has a son who asks for a stone would give him a loaf of bread? Or if he asks for fish, would give him a snake? If you then, being evil, do you hear the logic in this? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, inference, this is all Aristotelian logic, how much more will the Father give good things to those who ask him? So now, so far in the reasoning, we've gone from pray to me, pray to me, ask me, ask me for things. But will you answer? Well, let me tell you how I'll answer. You're, a, you're an evil father. He's just so blunt. I mean, no, you're an evil father. And when your kid says, can I have some bread? You don't hand him a stone. Did anybody hand him a stone? And the disciple, no, we don't hand him a stone. And he asks you for fish, you give him a snake. I mean, you can see what he's doing. He's saying, you fathers really care for your children. Guess what? God cares way more for you than you do for your kids. Well, that boosts prayer expectations higher. That's the point. Now I've got, con- I've got feelings rising, confidence and hope and joy, and God's going to hear me. You know what the next word is? Therefore. Or your version might say, so. Therefore. Whatever you would that others would do to you, do so to them. You ever made that connection before? I hadn't. For years and years and years, I never noticed the word so or therefore. Because I hadn't been taught to think. I hadn't been taught that reading is thinking, reading is construing, reading is seeing links in a chain. And here's a a massive link. If... God is the kind of God who is inclined to hear our prayers, provide our needs, take care of us. Therefore, you are free to sacrificially treat others the way you'd like to be treated. And until you have that kind of confidence, that kind of restfulness in God, you're going to use people 
to satisfy your soul and to meet your needs and protect you. You're not going to be free to sacrifice for people. You're going to be responding all the time, protecting yourself and defending yourself and getting your cut against people instead of saying, God has totally said, I'm on your side. I'm going to give you bread. I'm going to give you fish. I'm going to take care of you. You're my child. I love you. Go give yourself to people. And in that kind of deep, sweet, solid confidence in God, we love others. And I've just jumped over to the last message, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop. But that's where we're going to end um, whenever it is, um, Wednesday morning, I suppose. So that's the end of my 10. Here's the conclusion. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But the only kind of satisfaction in God that glorifies God is satisfaction that is rooted in right knowing, right thinking about God. Therefore, a life of thinking and a life of feeling are both essential to a life of glorifying God. So, Father, I pray now that wherever we are on the personality spectrum of a feeler and a thinker, you would help us to be good stewards of our hearts and good stewards of our heads for the glory of your Son through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.